Uh, but what I want to do today is I want to do a um, I want to do a, t- a TV show review. I I've occasionally done this kind of thing, but I haven't done it probably often enough. I think the last time was all the way back when the Passion movie came out. So it's been quite a while. There's been a and, and part of this I think is a good thing that's happening. There's been kind of a uh, an influx of what, when I was growing up, used to be called religious media, uh, but now it's more known as faith-based media, um, production of, of movies and TV shows that are produced by Christian ministries for the purpose of either ministering to the Christian community or, uh, in many cases, uh, intended as an outreach to the unbelieving community, a way of reaching people and a way of starting conversations with people between believers and unbelievers. And I think that part of it is good. Um, And what I'm going to be talking about today, I think, has an element uh, to it that would allow for that as well. Uh, But I I wanted to just briefly address, before I get into the meat of the review that I want to do, is why, you know, why would I do a movie or TV review on a Sunday morning when normally we're just studying scripture directly? I, I think it's important to occasionally do stuff like this because, one, we, we live in a culture, a moment ago David was talking about uh, a certain characteristic of our society. Uh, this is a different one, but our society is very much, our culture is very much an entertainment-focused culture, entertainment-filled culture. There's, there's more media entertainment that's a big part of our culture than any culture has ever had in the history of the world and so it's it's a bigger part of our lives even our lives as believers how many of you have a a tv set how many of you occasionally at least watch it how many of you have a computer where you 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 know maybe look at videos on youtube or any kind of media of that sort and we all have nowadays a cell phone and we look at we look at stuff on our cell phone so we're just an entertainment-filled culture. It's a, it's a big part of our lives, even as believers. And what I'm concerned about in all of that, I don't think that's all bad, and I don't think it's all evil. There is some bad elements of that. There's some evil elements of that, and we certainly have to always be on guard. But my concern is that even with what I'm going to call good family-based kind of entertainment in media, that and even like in this case faith-based entertainment which you would expect oh it's faith-based i can just i can turn off my discernment and just watch it and soak it in and enjoy it without having to always be concerned about whether it's right or wrong i think that's a problem for our for believers and especially with the material that is being produced by the faith-based entertainment companies Christian companies, for the most part, that are producing uh, new movies and new TV shows. Um, and also, like I, I mentioned at the beginning, watching stuff like this isn't limited. I'm talking about the faith-based material that's being produced. It's not limited to believers. So people watch stuff just because they're interested to watch it. And the show I'm going to be talking about, I'm sure there are unbelievers out there who have watched it or are watching it. And so um, that would at least provide opportunity for interaction that could lead to something really good. 
uh, no matter what the nature of the material is that they're watching. So what I want to review, and this review, really, I, I, I just want to apologize and say, this review is four years too late. What I mean by that is, the show I'm going to be reviewing is called The Chosen. It's a TV show. It's a TV series. It's currently in its third season, and the, the man that's created it and is producing it uh, has planned something like seven or eight seasons. So it's long and it's extended. There's not a ton of episodes per season. There's about eight episodes per season. But um, they're all focused on the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. And it's unique. It's uh, the first time there's ever been a TV series on the life and ministry of Jesus. So it provides some, some uh, interesting format for um, for just watching and for, as I mentioned before, conversation with others. How many of you are at least familiar with The Chosen, have heard of it before? Uh, how many of you have at least watched one episode? Okay, so many of you have. So again, my apology. I should have addressed this when it first came out. I should have said something about it. I should have set aside some time to do it. <coughs> I, I just, it wasn't in my immediate field of view I did have a couple of believers, one from in the church and one from outside the church, the uh, former member of the church that's moved elsewhere, uh, mentioned to me that they, they'd be interested to hear my, my thoughts or my input on the show. But since I wasn't personally watching it, um, I, I just never got around to doing this, but I, I, I'm glad that I'm doing it this morning. Now, uh, full disclosure, I haven't seen the entire series uh, I've watched some segments of different episodes as part of my preparation for uh, the review that I'm doing this morning. All right, so let me give you some background on the series. Then I'm going to share with you what I like about the series, and then I'm going to share with you what I don't like about the series, and then I'm going to give you uh, my final thoughts, my conclusion about uh, your relationship to the series in terms of your own watching it. Um, so the source of the series is it's produced by a man named Dallas Jenkins. Now, he, is, uh, he went to Bible college. Um, he, his father is a famous Christian author. You may not be familiar with him, but I'm sure you've at least heard uh, what he produced. He and another, uh, another man, his father's name was Jerry Jenkins. Um, his father, along with another man by the name of Tim LaHaye, who was a pastor and an author, they together wrote the Left Behind series of books on Bible prophecy that are entirely off base and completely misunderstand most every Bible prophecy that they're portraying in terms of the stories in the books, which were then later developed into movies. And I've talked many times about the nature of that, so I don't want to veer off into that. But uh, that's his background. His son now, he's an adult. He went to Bible college. He's very interested in media. Very, he's actually, from what I could tell in terms of what I've seen in the show, he's gifted at what he does. Uh, he's produced a high-quality show in terms of just production quality. So um, he's, he's capable of doing what he's doing. Um, what he said about his own show is this. Our intentions 
in producing this show and portraying the life and ministry of Jesus, our intentions are different than the Bible's intentions. Now, what he meant by that, I want to give him credit, and I don't want to make more out of that statement than should be made. What he's saying is that the Bible is intending to give you a clear and definitive proclamation, and in some cases, explanation on top of that proclamation of the truth in order to save you. Now, he's saying that's not our goal in doing this TV show. But my issue, of course, is if you have a different intention than the Bible in producing a show about the Bible that's supposed to be based upon biblical content, please identify where your intentions veer from biblical intentions so that we can identify as believers at each point where you veered off. And of course, he's just kind of broad brushed the difference in intentions without ever giving uh, specifics about that. Now, he did put together what he calls an expert panel of consultants so that as they're, because what what they're doing, each episode is like a, a segment taken from one of the four gospels. And then they're portraying that in dramatic in, in a dramatic way. Um, they he assembled this expert panel in order to be kind of like his um, his consultants to make sure that he was doing a good job of portraying what's actually in the text. So he assembled an expert panel of three men, and one of which is a Jewish rabbi, which I have no idea why he chose a Jewish rabbi since um, they don't recognize the four gospels as valid material, but he chose a Jewish rabbi, I think probably just for the, the historical elements of Jewish culture, most likely. Uh, the second expert was a Catholic priest, a Roman Catholic priest, who for the most part, they completely misunderstand the four gospels. And then the third was an evangelical scholar. And I'm not familiar with the man. I, I've, I, I, uh, I, re- I don't recognize his name. I'm not saying he's not a, a, a true scholar. I'm just not familiar with him, so I can't really speak to his um, ability to be qualified and equipped to do the kind of consulting that such a project would require. Um, one of the chief writers on the show. So Dallas Jenkins has created it, he's produced it, and he is directing the episodes, but he's not writing every line of dialogue and every, you know, every portion of the actual shows. <clears throat> so one of his chief writers, a man by the name of Tyler Thompson, said this about the, the source material that the show comes from, the Bible. He says, the Bible is good literature, but it's not infallible. So you know right off you're getting... As, as the person who's writing the episodes, you're getting a perspective that's going to be woven into everything that's being portrayed as, um, well, we've got good source material to work from, but we've got plenty of wiggle room to kind of massage and, and, and maneuver and, and kind of alter things as it suits our dramatic purposes because we're not dealing with infallible material. <coughs> of course, I hope you understand the problem with that without me having to go into an in-depth explanation of it. <clears throat> uh, the showrunners, so there's a group, including Dallas Jenkins, including Tyler Thompson. There's a group that kind of are in charge of, 
of plotting the, the direction of the show. The showrunner said this as a group in, a, in an interview session. They see the show as a multi-lane highway for relationships with Jesus to form. <clears throat> what they're essentially saying is, <clears throat> we're making a, a broad brush approach to the material, and we're hopeful that we can, we can bring people from all kinds of different backgrounds into a new kind of relationship with Jesus. And I think that's admirable in terms of intent and, and uh, their, their stated purpose. The problem with the imagery, of course, and how it affects the way they're portraying the material that they're dealing with is Jesus himself talked about pathways to God and he intentionally set up a a pair of images for us to understand what a pathway to relationship with God is all about. And he talked about a narrow path, which is not a multi-lane highway. And he talked about a broad and wide path and he said, there's few people that walk the narrow path, but it's the only one that actually leads to God. And then there are many who are on this multi-lane highway kind of path. And that path does not lead where people who are traveling it think that it actually leads. Um, one of the issues I have with the um, project is in order to produce this, they needed, of course, a a media production company, and uh, Dallas Jenkins chose a company by the name of Vid Angel, which is a Mormon media production company, and they filmed the entire project on a, a Mormon-owned uh, Latter-day Saints set. Um, now, is it possible, theoretically possible, to film a good project on a occult set? Yes, it's theoretically possible, but Jenkins, in the, the questions that have been raised about this, went on to refer to Mormons as his brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, he, referring to Mormon involvement in the project, uh, stated, ultimately, we love the same Jesus. So I don't see what the big deal is. So um, I think that's problematic, obviously, for discernment issues and trying to as a believer to separate out the threads of what is a healthy influence here and what is an entirely unhealthy and actually spiritually dangerous influence involved in the project all right let me talk for a minute about what i like about the series in terms of what i've seen from it uh when i what i mean by saying what i like about it is what i think is admirable about the series it's a high quality production. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't know if some of you older, older in the Lord, people who have been in the Lord for many years, do you remember when they first started producing Christian media movies? Do uh, you remember, and I'm talking about going back 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I'm not talking about the Hollywood produced movies about Christian stories or Bible stories. I'm talking about produced within the Christian community. 30, 40 years ago, I'm talking about some cheesy level production quality. I mean, it was just like someone put on a high school drama and then they happened to have a a camera to film it and then they packaged that and and sold it as high quality Christian entertainment. Uh, This is not like that. This this is as good a quality production uh, as any other 
quality show that you might choose to watch on TV. Acting, really good acting from what I saw. <coughs> I, the the uh, portions that I've seen, I didn't have a single moment where I was thinking to myself, well, get a professional to act. You know, this is, this is a person that doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, really, really good actors. And, and the guy that portrays Jesus, um, he's a, I, I, his name, first name is Jonathan. I forget his last name. He's a devout Roman Catholic. He, um, you know, if you can imagine, if you're an actor and you're going to play any role where you're, you're, thank you very much, you're portraying someone uh, in history, what would be the single most challenging role to portray of any historical figure ever? It would be trying to portray Jesus, to, to, to represent yourself as Jesus to an audience. Uh, it's an impossible task. But, you know, I think he did a good job. Uh, the whole show has what I would call a, an authentic feel to it, meaning um, you get the sense that you're in first century Jerusalem and its surrounding areas, and you get the sense of the, the, the grittiness of the time and the real circumstances that people lived in. I, I think that's wonderful. I think they did a really good job of that. I would conclude what I like about the show by saying this. I would be a huge fan of the show. And I would be recommending it highly to you, which I'm not going to be, um, if they had remained true to the actual Gospels, the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as the, the source material, giving it the honor that the source material deserves and really requires. But they did not choose to remain true to the source material. Uh, they've monkeyed around uh, with the text to such a point where I, I just, uh, at the end, I'm not going to be able to recommend it to you. So what don't I like about the show uh, in terms of specifics? Um, the Chosen, I'll, I'll just say it this way, this is the most simple way I can say it. The Chosen chooses to add to Scripture where they shouldn't add to Scripture, and they choose to take away from the scriptural account, the biblical account, where they shouldn't take away. Um, to me, that's problematic. Now, in, in their own defense, because <clears throat> they've been questioned about this before, their defense is, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, this phrase you're familiar with, artistic license. Now, what does artistic license mean? It, generally speaking, it has to do with if a TV show or a movie is based on some literary source, some book, then because it's, it's compacted and you might have, like in the Bible, you've got hundreds of pages and, and now we're going to try to condense that and we're going to try to portray that in a short and abbreviated time period. It's challenging to do that. And so artistic license means the principle is, you know, I, I need some, some room to, to make some modifications and adjustments in how I portray this material. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a opposed to the principle of artistic license in, when it comes to turning a book into a movie or turning a book into a TV show. Um, many of you know that I'm a, a fan of the, uh, the Lord of the Rings world um, that J.R.R. Tolkien created, uh, wrote. Uh, originally, it was a single book, but the publishers later turned it into three books, 
uh, because they felt like uh, very few people would want to read one single book that was that thick. So they published it in three portions. And um, not uh, some 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago now, um, uh, a New Zealand filmmaker by the name of Peter Jackson took that material and he, he turned it into a movie. And in order to do that, he needed some artistic license. Now, I love the books, totally love the books. I've read the Lord of the Rings books three times, cover to cover, and some portions of it more than three times. And I love the movies that he produced, but the movies are not identical to the books. There's, there are significant differences between the two. But he changed what he changed based upon this principle of artistic license. I agree with some of his decisions and the changes that he chose, and I disagree with some of his decisions in the material that he chose to, to change. But I don't have an issue with it because he needed artistic license to turn such a huge book into, I mean, and those are the, the uh, director's cuts, as you know, they're long, right? So there are like four hours each, three movies. You've got a total of of some nearly 12 hours of material, even 12 hours is not sufficient to fully portray accurately the Lord of the Rings material. Why don't I have an issue with that? I don't have an issue because the Lord of the Rings is fiction. It's not real. It, it never happened. You know, it, it's, it's portraying an early history of this world, but Tolkien knew that you would be able to figure out that he wasn't telling a true historic record of the early ages of this world, that he was telling a, a fantasy uh, account of the early ages of this world. And so if you take a fictional account of history and then modify it to a different fictional account, but which in spirit is honoring the original account, then I don't have an issue with that. You're just dealing with two different versions of a fiction. Um, I, I'll give you another example of where I think artistic license is allowable, even if I disagree with it. So I'm, I'm also a Star Wars fan. And um, not too many years ago, they decided to make three new Star Wars movies. And I didn't really enjoy them. I, I mean, I loved all of the Star Wars movies prior to this. But I didn't enjoy the three new Star Wars movies. And one of the reasons why is they, they changed an element in the story so much that I, I just, eh, it lost my interest, right? So you had Luke Skywalker, who was the hero of the first three movies. And then he's now being portrayed as an old man in um, the, the newer movies. But they've changed his character so much that to me, it was no longer Luke Skywalker. It was just some old guy. It wasn't really the original Luke Skywalker. But at the same time in my head, I'm thinking to myself as I'm watching the movies, Luke Skywalker's not real. <laughs> He's just, somebody made, George Lucas made him up. And so it's okay. It's not the end of the world. You know, it's not, it's not hugely problematic. I, I disagreed with the artistic license, the degree and the extent to which they changed the story, but it was a fictional story to begin with. Now, what's the problem with the chosen in terms of artistic license? You can't do that to the Bible. Or at very least, if you're a faith-based 
media venture. You should not do that to the Bible. If your stated intention is to portray the actual account of what really did happen, we're not dealing with mythology, as Jerry has been emphasizing to us for the last four studies that he did. We're not dealing with legendary material. We're not dealing with fiction. And because we're not dealing with fiction, we certainly shouldn't be dealing with what The Chosen ultimately ends up being, which is a fan fiction version of the four Gospels. Now, fan fiction is when someone who's a fan of some source material decides to write their own version or make their own modifications. And that's exactly what um, Dallas Jenkins has done. Let me give you some examples. Um, Matthew, one of the original 12 disciples, is portrayed and plays a, a fairly big role in the chosen story. Um, he's depicted in the TV show, and this is just a strange choice. I don't know. I would be interested to ask Dallas Jenkins, why did you make this decision? He's portrayed as being on the autistic spectrum. Now, why, why, is, it, why is it helpful or useful to portray the disciple Matthew as autistic? I, I, I guarantee you Matthew was not autistic. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically say whether he was or wasn't, but it's just, it's just a strange decision to add to the show, maybe some dramatic element, but why go there? What's the point? What's benefiting the, the, the uh, viewer? Uh, the disciple James is portrayed as having cerebral palsy. Um, I, I, again, just a strange choice. Um, another example, Peter, the, the disciple Peter that we're all familiar with, in speaking to the other disciples about John the Baptist, refers to John the Baptist as Creepy John. Why would you do that? Uh, Obviously, Peter never, ever referred to John the Baptist as Creepy John, nor would he. Why? Because Jesus made it super clear to his disciples in the early days of his ministry to them and teaching them that John the Baptist was not just a true prophet of God, And the one who was sent as a forerunner to Israel to introduce the Messiah, to introduce Jesus to God's people Israel, but that Jesus emphasized that John was greater than all of the great prophets of the Old Testament and the greatest of them all. Why why in the world would then Peter, having heard that from Jesus, turn around and say to one of the other disciples, referring to John. Uh, That's creepy John. It's just a strange choice. But not just strange, but strange in 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 a spiritually significantly unhealthy way. Uh, So here, here's a part of the portrayal of Jesus. So we all know that, and we study through the Gospel of Matthew in great detail together. So I hope that you can remember some of that study that we did together. And there are, in the Gospel of Matthew, there are five great teaching segments. The whole Gospel is a teaching tool, but there are five great teaching segments in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is what we would call publicly speaking. The most famous one, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount, where we spent, we spent a number of months together studying the Sermon on the Mount. And so, um, how do you see that day, because it all happened in one day. Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount a single day where he went up on a mountain, he sat down 
with his disciples and the gathered crowd that was there to hear him. And he proclaimed the principles of true discipleship and what it really meant to walk with him and follow him. How do you see that happening? Do you think that, that uh, Jesus, before that day, um, did the kind of prep work that I do when I'm preparing a, a teaching to deliver to you on Sunday morning or on a Thursday night or when I'm traveling to Kenya to preach to the pastors there. Um, I do a lot of prep work, behind the scenes stuff where you don't see what I'm doing. You don't see the work that's put into the investment in terms of work and prep that's necessary in order to do that. So I don't believe that prior to the day of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus was behind the scenes because remember his disciples stayed with him for three years, day and night. And if he were doing prep work, they would have seen him doing prep work and most likely would have mentioned that he was doing prep work. But I don't believe the day before the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus was doing prep work. I believe that when the day came, he went and sat on that mountain and just from his overflowing heart, he proclaimed the truths that he proclaimed and explained those principles to his disciples in the way that would be helpful for them to understand. So in The Chosen, what they have is when Jesus was about to give his great sermon that he was doing prep work and not just doing prep work, but rehearsing his sermon before he actually delivered it. Now, there are some, there are some pastors that do rehearse their sermons. I am not one, and I'm not an opponent of it. I don't believe that it's somehow wrong or, or less spiritual than, than, um, than those who don't rehearse. Um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to uh, imply that you should just speak right off the top of your head and no, you know, uh, give no thought or consideration to not just what you're saying, but even how you're saying it. Um, I know that, uh, and I'm not using this example as, as a, a, great, uh, a great model to follow, but uh, who's, the, uh, who's the pastor in, in uh, Texas that, Joel Osteen, he's the number one TV show for Christian uh, pastors and churches and the number one selling Christian author, though he has no business being the number one Christian best-selling author. But he does that. He, so he writes out all of his sermons, uh, probably types them out, and then, um, or maybe he dictates them and has them typed up for him. I don't know. But anyway, he prepares his sermons in a script form. And then he's admitted this, he's described this, so I'm not, I'm not just inventing this, this information. He stand, in his study, he stands before, he's got a full-length mirror, he stands before the full-length mirror, and several times during the week, before that Sunday service, he practices not just what he's going to say, because that's already prepared, he's reading off of a script, he practices the way that he's going to say it so that he can at key moments add certain dramatic touches and certain dramatic flair to his presentation. That's what they portrayed Jesus as doing prior to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, to me, it's, it's just a ridiculous dramatic element to add to the story and certainly one that completely changes a viewer's perspective of Jesus delivering the message that God had sent him to deliver. Um, 
change in emphasis in things that Jesus had to say. There's one line that I personally watched in which he was having a dinner with his disciples in Matthew's house. And uh, in this scene, they had Pharisees come and knock on the door. And then they saw who Jesus was eating dinner with, which was a tax collector, and there were some sinners present. And they, uh, and this is similar to the biblical account, they confront Jesus uh, about having dinner with sinners. And they have Jesus respond in the show with a partly accurate line from the four gospels. And the line in the four gospels is, do not think that I came to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. And then there's a last phrase that's added to that sentence. I came to call sinners to repentance. So in the portrayal in the, in the show, and this is where they're using artistic license, but in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons, they have Jesus saying, I came to call sinners, period. So they leave out the phrase to repentance. Now, that's an, that's an editorial decision. And the editorial decision was made because repentance as a message of the church and a message of the Lord himself is an issue in our current cultural climate. When you call someone to repentance, what are you implying about them? You're implying that there's something wrong with them. You're implying that they have an, an issue in their life that can only be resolved by a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of behavior, a change of life. And so they've deleted that element. And this goes with the broader culture of what we have come to describe as the seeker-sensitive approach to portraying the gospel to the culture around us. And, and that seeker-sensitive approach is, I want to be sensitive to the feelings of those that don't know the Lord to such an extent that I never want to say anything that might be offensive to them. And if you say to an unbeliever, to someone that may be seeking the truth, but they're not there yet, and you say to them, hey, there's something wrong with you. There is an issue of sin between you and God. You are potentially offending them. And so to remove that phrase to repentance was no doubt intentional, purposeful, but I think uh, completely misses the mark. One other example of, of just kind of overview of uh, what I don't like about the way they portrayed this material. Uh, they had a, a scene uh, taken from John chapter 3 where Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus late at night. The man that played Nicodemus, really good actor. Uh, it's, a, it's a somewhat touching scene, the, the conversation they're having. But while the scene is unfolding, there are some issues with the, the, the dialogue in the scene. They add words that they shouldn't add and take away words they shouldn't have taken away. But there's some actual direct quotes from Scripture that I did like. But while that scene is taking place, they show the 12 disciples in the next room kind of with their ears up against the wall trying to listen in to what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about. And they show John, the apostle, with a, some kind of a, a writing pad and a, and a stylus, and he's, he's busily taking notes about what's being said. Obviously, John is the one that later, out of all of the 12, he's the one that is given the assignment by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, to write the account.
account of what happened between Jesus and Nicodemus that night. That's not included in any of the other three Gospels. And so they portrayed John as writing down notes. And one of the other disciples tries to start a conversation with him. And he hushes the other disciple like, hush, I'm going to miss this. And then I won't have an accurate record of, of what actually happened so that I can record it in my gospel account later. Now, I understand they probably did that in an in a, in intention to show some reverence for the work that was done to prepare for the writing of the four gospels. But they completely missed the point that John himself later emphasizes in his gospel. Let me read you this passage from the Last Supper and what Jesus said to his disciples as they were spending that last night together before he went to the cross. This is from John 14, verse 26. Jesus said to the the disciples, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and then this key phrase, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, Jesus says to his disciples, I am going to send you a spiritual helper in the person of the Holy Spirit, and when he comes, he will cause you to supernaturally remember everything that I ever said to you and taught you so that there will be no mistake or error whatsoever in whatever account I may have you write of these events. That's the implication. But instead, the show decides, rather than take that as the guiding principle of how the four Gospels were produced, the show takes the approach of, well, you know, the the material we have in the Gospels is just as accurate as John's notes were when someone was trying to talk to him in the other ear. Have you ever had a circumstance where you're trying to pay attention to what, like, okay, this is not favorable in my, in my, uh, in my defense, but we've got a, a Laker playoff game going on last night. I'm watching the Laker game, and Sandy is sitting next to me, and she's learned to love the Lakers along with me. Um, and she wasn't, she wasn't, she didn't start out as a Laker fan, but she's d- certainly developed into one. But I'm watching the game, and I'm, it's the playoffs, right? So in the playoffs, I kind of blur everything out and I lock in like the players lock in, right? Because they need me to lock in with them. So I'm locked in and she's starting a conversation with me over here and and I get a little bit miffed. Why? Why am I miffed? I'm locked in. If If I waver in my focus, they may miss the next shot. Right, Sydney? Yeah, you're locked in. So that's how they're portraying John producing the Gospel of John. He's writing notes, but somewhat Peter's talking in his other ear. Come on, man, I got to pay attention where I could miss a word or two. And so as a result, you might have a missed word or two in the four Gospels in terms of how they're portraying uh, the development of this material. So there's a warning at the end of the Bible. You're familiar with it. It's at the end of the book of Revelation. Let me read it and let me talk about how it's commonly misunderstood and applied. This is from Revelation 22. And I'll read two verses, 18 and 19. And this is, this is material at the end of the book of Revelation that no reader of that book 
should disregard or ignore. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, the common misunderstanding and a common misapplication is that the phrase, this book, is referring to the entire Bible as we have it now, all 66 individual books as they were originally written, but now for our benefit, published under one unified cover. That is not who the speaker, that's not what the speaker is referring to. It's not referring to all 66 books together. It's referring to the book of Revelation. So he says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, and you think, okay, don't do that. These are important words. This is a heavenly revelation given by the Lord himself to the apostle John who faithfully wrote them down. John himself shouldn't add to them, nor should anyone who later reads John's words choose to have the freedom to add to them. And here's why. This is how seriously God himself takes it. And as it replies to the book of Revelation, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Now, I'm not going to go back through a whole reading of the, the record of the plagues that are described in this book, but do you remember any of the plagues described in the book of Revelation? None of them are preferred experiences. None of them are, are chosen experiences. No one, no one of us would say, you know what, I, we, we don't have much on the agenda today. Let's, let's have one of those plagues in the book of Revelation poured out on our heads, on our lives, on our homes, on our families, on our, our church, on our circumstances. If anyone asks them, God will, and is the writer here exaggerating just to make a point? Or is this a real warning of inevitable judgment if you monkey with the words of the book of Revelation? It's a real warning. And God meant what he said. And I trust that more than once, he's followed through with what he has said. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And, verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. What does that mean, take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city? It means take away his portion of eternal blessings that come from a saved relationship with the Lord. Now, to me, that's a, I mean, you can't get, you cannot get to a more serious level of warning from the Lord about, don't add to my words, don't diminish them, don't take away from them, portray them and represent them exactly as I revealed them. Adding nothing, taking nothing away. Now, this was a warning for the book of Revelation. The chosen TV series is not focused on the book of Revelation. So is there, is there therefore 100% artistic license for every other book that we might portray in scripture other than the book of Revelation? We can do whatever we want with the other 65 books, but with this one book, okay, we'll leave that one alone and just let it speak for itself. I think the principle applies, and the principle is this. We're dealing with God's revealed words. We don't want to put words in the mouth of the Lord himself that he never spoke, nor do we want to change their meaning or diminish their meaning or take away from their meaning by taking away key phrases like, 
I came not to call the sinner, not to call uh, the righteous, but sinners, and then the key phrase, to repentance. We don't have editorial license, artistic license, when it comes to the word of God. So my biggest issue with the chosen is this, is they're changing the dialogue of the Lord Jesus himself. Now, there are way too many occurrences of this for me to uh, give you a full record, uh, but I'll just give you two examples so that you understand what I'm describing. Uh, there's a, uh, there is a, a scene where Jesus is interacting with John the Baptist. And in this scene, this is, of course, toward the beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Um, in this interaction with John the Baptist, they're speaking about sins and matters that are addressed in the law of God, the law of Moses. And they're specifically focused on discussing the sins of incest and adultery. And in the response that Jesus has to John's concerns that are being expressed, Jesus says this to John in the show, not in scripture, I hope uh, to be clear for you to understand. He says in the show, I understand, he's talking about incest and adultery. I understand it is against the law of Moses, but I'm here for bigger purposes than rule breaking. Now, what does that mean? Why would they put those words in the mouth of the Lord Jesus? It's basically saying that Jesus isn't really concerned with any sin that you commit. He's just concerned that you get into a right relationship with him. Now, part of that, there's a thread or an element of truth, which is no sin you have ever committed prior to coming to know the Lord is an ultimate barrier to your experience of the new birth and salvation. Meaning the saving grace that he released in his death, his saving sacrifice on the cross was more than sufficient to deal with any barrier that you have ever erected between yourself and God in terms of your own sinful choices and behaviors. But what the way they phrase it doesn't give that message. The way they phrase it is, Jesus isn't really concerned about you know, all of the different ways that you're sinning against God. He's only concerned that you come and have a relationship with him. And that is absolutely not the truth of what's in the heart of the Lord Jesus or what was in the heart of the Lord Jesus during his ministry in this world. In fact, concerning the law of Moses, Jesus, and we studied this in some detail, but it's been years now, in the Gospel of Matthew said this in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll be there in just a minute. In Matthew 5, 17, this is a public teaching aimed at his disciples, but he's addressing his perspective about the law of God, the law of Moses. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now that's a completely different emphasis and a completely different message than the one they put into the mouth of Jesus in order to dramatically portray what they wanted to portray about him in the show. 
Here's another one. It's not as huge, but it's an issue because there's some elements. I talked about Mormon elements that were woven into the, the backdrop of the show before, but there were, there's also a Roman Catholic element. Uh, again, one of, the, one of the three leading consultants is a Roman Catholic priest. The, the man uh, portraying Jesus is himself a devout Catholic who uh, identifies the most significant experience of his life being when he personally had an audience with the Pope because of his role in the chosen show. Um, so they portray Jesus as having a conversation with his mother, Mary, a private conversation. And he says this to his mother. This is supposedly the Lord Jesus talking to his mom. What would I do without you? Now, I think if you give them the benefit of the doubt, you could say, well, Jesus was honoring his mother. And did Jesus honor his mother Mary in his life here in this world? Absolutely. It's the fifth commandment out of the 10. Honor your father and your mother. And Jesus never violated a single commandment. So we know with certainty that he honored his mother, never once dishonoring her, either in public or in private. But I guarantee you, he never said to her, what would I do without you? What does that imply? More than honor, what does that imply? That he's somehow leaning on her, dependent upon her. And of course, in the Roman Catholic perspective, they have a different kind of relationship than they actually had in the real world historic events of the four gospels. So the issue with putting words into the mouth of Jesus, let me just read to you one passage from the gospel of John as a reminder. John chapter 12, and I'm almost at the end here. John chapter 12, read verse 49. And this is the Lord Jesus speaking. He says this, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. Now, what does that apply about the words of the Lord Jesus? Every single word was a word that God the Father commanded the Lord Jesus to speak. So to portray the Lord Jesus and then put dialogue in his mouth that he never spoke, at the very best is confusing. And at the worst, is potentially deceptive or at least misleading. Uh, I think I've told this story once before, but I'll briefly tell it and connect it to this situation. There was a a woman in the church years ago. Uh, She's no longer a part of our church. But she, uh, I was in a conversation with her and she was, we were talking about the, uh, I think it was in a Bible study actually. We were talking about the law of Moses and we were talking about the events of the children of Israel being camped around Mount Sinai as Moses went up on the mountain in order to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And then at a certain point, Moses came back down the mountain, right? And came and revealed the commandments to the people. And she chimed up in the Bible study and said uh, something to the effect of, oh yeah, that's when uh, Moses' hair turned white. And I said to her, you know, I'm teaching, and I go, uh, I had to, you know, kind of like 
what's going on here? I had to, you know, I had to kind of evaluate, but I, I couldn't figure it out. So I asked her, what, what do you mean when Moses' hair turned white? She said, you know, when he came down from the mountain with the, the tablets of the law in his hands, he, you know, he had gone up on the mountain with black hair and he came down from the mountain with white hair. And I said, uh, no, that's not actually the case, but w- w- what made you think that? She said, it's in the movie. <laughs> and she was referring to, and then it clicked for me, because I had seen it more than once, but I wasn't putting those two elements together. She was referring to the famous old Cecil B. DeMille produced movie, uh, The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston as Moses. How many of you have ever seen that old movie? Okay, so in those days, Cecil B. DeMille had a concern, and the concern was, I want to portray the difference in Moses from going up the mountain to coming down the mountain. And in the biblical account, when he came down the mountain, his face was shining with the glory of God because he had been in the immediate presence of God's Shekinah glory for 40 days and 40 nights. So his face had soaked up, so to speak, some of that glory. And his face was shining so bright that the people, as he came down the mountain, this is the biblical account, said, cover your face, you're blinding us. Now, Cecil B. DeMille wanted to portray some of that element, but he didn't have the special effects available to him, computer graphics and so forth that we have today. So in order to portray it, what he decided to do was, we'll just color Charlton Heston's hair white because white looks like more like glory than his dark hair did before. And so if you're watching the movie, he goes up on the mountain with dark hair and he comes down the mountain with white hair. And she saw that at some point in her younger life and did what? She took it as gospel. She took it as fact, as history. Because for whatever reason, and I, I, you know, I'm not criticizing her, she was just immature enough in her understanding that she wasn't able to separate truth from fan fiction of the truth. And that's what Cecil B. DeMille did. And, and it's a decent movie, but it's got a lot of issues too. I mean, in terms of the chosen level kind of issues. But the point being that at best... Putting words in the mouth of Jesus is misleading and at worst can end up in a deceptive influence, changing subtly your perspective about who Jesus actually is, what Jesus actually proclaimed, and what the message of the four gospels actually is. Now, would you see me as a fairly qualified discerner? I hope so. I am a fairly qualified discerner. And I'm watching this show, and I'm having to, moment by moment, stop and remind myself, I'm watching a show here. I've got to evaluate. This may not be portraying the gospel. Because the show is so well done, it just kind of draws you into the story. And at a certain point, the tendency is to just check, you know, to to click the button in your, in your brain, which turns the discerning element off and just enjoy what you're watching. But when you're dealing with proclamation of gospel truth or portrayal of gospel truth and real events of the most important life that's ever been lived, 
I don't believe you can ever at any point afford to click that button and turn that discerning element off. So my conclusion is I can't recommend the show, the series. It weaves too much fiction and in some cases error into the, in with the truth that is actually part of the show. You've heard this uh, many times before though, the, the, um, the effectiveness of rat poison is what? That they, they make it effective because what it is, it's a, it's a food source for rats. You, you buy rat poison, you lay it out, and it appeals to the rats because 98% or 99, in some cases, percent of what is in rat poison is just good, healthy food for the rats. And then they add into that food one or two percent poison. The rat isn't able to discern that there's poison in the food and he eats the food and it's not the food that kills him. It's the poison that's woven in that he's not aware of. So there are actual moments in this show where there are just true quotes directly from the gospel without any changes, without any alteration, without any modification. But there's all these error elements that are subtly woven in and there's no flags that are popping up on the screen saying, okay, we've changed the story here or we've changed the quote here. Just be aware, we're changing stuff now. We're changing stuff up on you. Double check on, uh, on your own in the scriptures to make sure that you're not being misinformed or that you're not being subtly influenced. So because of that, uh, I, I really can't recommend it. What I can recommend if you want to see a good portrayal of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, I can recommend two projects that were produced years ago. Um, maybe the production value isn't quite at the level that this show is, but it's, it's not amateurish, either of these. They're well done. The first is a movie that is available pretty much everywhere. I'm sure it's on Amazon. Um, It's called The Gospel of Luke. It was produced by a group called The Jesus Film Project. It is the most widely seen movie portraying biblical events ever in history. And uh, their last account, there have been some number of millions of people that have Uh, apparently come to know the Lord from watching this movie because what they've done is they put copies of this movie into the hand of missionaries all over the world. I mean, there are people like in the tribes that I've described to you in in outer Kenya who have seen this movie because someone has brought and shown the movie to them in their own language. Um, What's so good about the Gospel Luke movie? Every single word of dialogue is taken directly and only from the Gospel of Luke. No changes, no additions to the dialogue, no, no uh, diminishing of the dialogue. It's just directly from the Gospel of Luke. There's another project, almost identical, that was produced a few years after that called The Gospel of John. And every, I own a copy of this one. It's a really good movie. It's a good portrayal. Every single word of dialogue taken directly and only from the Gospel of John um, and it's well worth watching. I can heartily recommend movies that, that recognize the value of the words of God that are revealed in the Gospels in the way that they do without alterations, without any artistic license. Um, unfortunately, I can't do that for The Chosen. If you have any questions about any part of the review, you know, I'll be, of course, hanging around afterwards. Be glad to interact with you or try to answer your questions. 
God bless you this morning, and we'll look forward, Lord willing, to seeing you next Sunday morning.